The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 9, 1 through 23. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you're unable to stand, join us now in lifting your hearts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you guys again. My name is Martin Antoon. I'm wrapping up my fourth year with RUF, which is the campus ministry of the PC of our denomination at Savannah College of Art and Design. And it's always a joy to be here uh, because really I like to see your faces because you have been a church that's been a great encouragement to me and Elizabeth as we serve in Savannah. Uh, we're grateful to partner with you in gospel ministry and we're grateful for your support and prayers. A lot of times people ask me a very obvious question, how is the ministry going at SCAD? And we sort of jokingly say this in RUF sometimes, we say ask me in five years, and like we're joking a little bit, but really there's a part of that that's serious, 
And what we mean is the end goal is not necessarily how many students showed up this past Wednesday, though that's important. What we long to see is students graduate and go out into the world, and particularly at SCAD, use the gifts that God has given them to serve the kingdom outside the church and inside the church. We know how the ministry is going if people are committed followers of Jesus in the church and they're living faithfully and they're using their vocations to serve his kingdom. I realized very recently, I say this, ask me in five years, and I'm about to start my fifth year, so suddenly now I have no out. I actually have to see what God has been doing. And conveniently enough, yesterday I got a text from a former student that graduated last year. She was in town and just was going to stop by the house just to catch up and uh, so we could hear how things were going. So we were sitting on the front porch. She works with a company in Atlanta. She's a visual effects supervisor. I'm not supposed to say what she's working on right now, but it will be something that you can watch on your streaming platforms when it's released. So we were sitting on the porch. It's an incredible job. She loves it. Uh, the company's growing. She's working on some really cool things. And she said she got a job offer in New York City that paid a lot more. And she said that she had always wanted to end up in New York even when she was at SCAD and she was telling me about this job and she said but I decided not to take it and I asked her the obvious question I said why did you not take it and her answer was because I love my church and I thought that was a perfect embodiment of what we long to see our students leave RUF and do she's faithfully serving in her creativity and doing amazing things uh, and actually witnessing uh, for the sake of the gospel where she works, but she's also committed to her church and loves her church and is serving in the church. So that's the type of work, that's a snapshot that you're partnering in uh, when you're supporting RUF, and we are so grateful for your support. If you'd like to know more about the ministry, I've got info cards. Um, would love to put you on our email newsletter list just so you can celebrate the work that God is doing as well. So some of you guys know this, before my wife and I, Elizabeth, moved to Savannah, we lived in Jackson, Mississippi. That's where we're from. That's where I advertise being from. But the truth is, I'm actually not from Jackson, Mississippi. Before Jackson, I lived in a very small town in the Mississippi Delta called Greenwood, Mississippi. And there's not a lot that happens in Greenwood, Mississippi. Which means this one particular day that I'm about to tell you about stood out as very significant for our family. It was me and my twin brother and our parents, my mom and my dad. And uh, somehow my dad came across a man who had locked himself out of his motel room and needed help. So sure enough, my dad went on this quest with him to figure out, remember this is pre-cell phones, to figure out what he needed to do to be able to get a new key and get himself back into his room. And after this happened, after they successfully got him back access to his room, my dad said, it'd mean a lot if you could come meet the rest of my family. And this man obliged, and he did. And you might be thinking, Greenwood really must be a boring place if this is a notable story. And this story in and of itself would not be that particularly exciting if not for the person who had unfortunately locked himself out of his motel room. Uh, somebody who, after this occasion, would go on to win an Academy Award and a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award, and a name who you almost certainly would recognize. The man was Denzel Washington, and he was filming a film in Greenwood, Mississippi, and we all met Denzel Washington that day. The only thing about this encounter is I have absolutely no memory of it. 
because I was still in my mother's womb, yet to be born completely oblivious to the person standing in front of us. There's something a little bit tragic about a story like this when you encounter somebody great and you miss them because you aren't aware of who they are. And this is the exact setting that we find ourselves in on Palm Sunday. Because it's not a famous actor locking himself out of the Ramada Inn in Greenwood, Mississippi. We have God's people in the center of Jerusalem lining the streets as Jesus rides in to accolades and to cheers and to excitement. The scene looks like the welcoming of a king ascending to the throne, taking his rightful place of glory. Yet only a few days later, Jesus will die a lonely death, absent of all of the people who seemingly welcomed his entrance. It's a tragedy to miss somebody important and significant because you aren't aware of who they are. And God's people were not aware of who Jesus was. They miss him. They want a king who is going to liberate them from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. They want a king who is going to elevate them to positions of power, to reacclimate them to the status quo, to give them the type of life that they want for their felt needs to be recognized, for their momentary sufferings to be obliterated. But Jesus is a different type of king on a different type of mission. And if we want this Easter... This Holy Week, this resurrection power to be something that isn't just a ritual that we go through each year, but something that has real significance in our lives. What that means is we have got to make sure we are seeing the real king. Would you know it if you encountered this king? What would it be like? Or would you miss him in search of another kingdom? This morning, we look to a man who encounters Jesus and who sees him for who he truly is and whose life from that day forward was never the same. The passage we just read and the man is a man named Saul who sees the true king. And we look to this passage not because it is uh, the, the paradigm of how we should expect Jesus to appear to us. In other words, this is not normative of how we would encounter Jesus face-to-face in his glorified body. That's not why we look at this passage. We look at this passage because what we see in Saul's life, the resulting fruit and change that takes place, is normative for us. In other words, if we do encounter the real king and we don't miss him looking for something else, then this is the type of transformation, of change, of impact that this encounter would have in our lives. So this morning we take a look at what it means to truly encounter the real King Jesus. So three things that we're going to see. An encounter with Jesus is overwhelming, it's transformational, and it's loving. An encounter with Jesus is overwhelming, transformational, and loving. So first, an encounter with Jesus is overwhelming. I wonder if you have ever been in an instance where you were helping somebody look for something and maybe they were 
holding the flashlight, and you turn to speak to them, maybe to ask a question, and as they turn, they also turn the light and shine it right in your eyes. The response to this is pretty universal. You do the same thing. You sort of lean back and you put your hands up and you squint your eyes a little bit, and if you're like me, you probably also have an irrational anger at the person who's just trying to help. But I wonder if you have ever encountered a light that was so bright You didn't just recoil back and put your hands up. You fell to the ground and could not look up, and you were blinded for three days. And you were so impacted and so just enamored by what had taken place that you couldn't even bring yourself to eat or drink for three days. This is the type of light that Saul has just witnessed as he has encountered Jesus. The interesting thing about this light is it's not like a spotlight that was shining on Jesus and the spotlight was so overwhelming he couldn't see. The light was Jesus. The mere presence of Jesus is so overwhelming that Saul can't even see. He won't even eat for three days. He is overwhelmed at the presence of Jesus. And it is crucial that we start here because so often in the way that we talk about or think about or imagine Jesus, it operates on our terms. And this is both, I think, for Christians and non-Christians. We think about and conceptualize a Jesus that just so happens to support all of our social or political ideas who agrees with us, who is in service of us, who wants nothing more than for our lives to look exactly like we have envisioned them. We describe a Jesus who operates on our terms. Often in our skepticism, in our unbelief, in our questions of Christianity, we describe actually a similar Jesus. I like to think that if Jesus were here, he would have this to say about this thing or Or he would probably be doing this. It's a Jesus who does not overwhelm us. It's a Jesus who operates on our terms exactly like we have fashioned him. Both in our opposition of and in our advocation for. But I can guarantee you the last thing on Saul's mind in this moment is how can I get Jesus to cohere to the plan that I have fashioned for my life? That is not even a thought he is entertaining. He is overwhelmed because he sees who Jesus really is. I think we already have a sense of this, whether or not we're aware of it. I think this explains why we do things like go to the Grand Canyon or go to the Blue Ridge Mountains or maybe even move to Hilton Head. We look at these grand pictures of nature. And the thoughts that we have are not, it's not, oh, this is neat. This is pretty. This is nice. It's not that those things aren't true. It's just way deeper than that, isn't it? When we stand there and look at these majestic things, the thoughts that we have are, this is profound. This is majestic. This is glorious. This is almost otherworldly. And instead of turning to something else, we want to look deeper in and see the secret behind the curtain. 
In other words, we want to be overwhelmed. It's because we were made to be. And the things that we look to with this sense of grandiosity we find in nature, what if those are shadows pointing us to the one who made those things overwhelming because he himself is overwhelming? We want to be overwhelmed. And an encounter with King Jesus is nothing short of overwhelming. But what's also happening here is that Saul isn't just overwhelmed because he sees who Jesus is. He's also overwhelmed because he sees who he is himself. What does Jesus say when he appears to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my people? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And what Saul realizes inescapably in this moment is that his entire life, the things that he's longing for, what he feels, what he's doing, all of these things have been an affront to God. And what he's witnessing present in Jesus, the glory, the holiness, the goodness, the majesty, he is the exact inverse of all of these things. In other words, where he sees Jesus' goodness He now sees his own badness. And the realization of this is overwhelming. He looks down and cannot even look up. You begin to survey the Bible, and you find that whenever somebody sees face-to-face the glory of God, their face then moves in a different direction, almost across the board. Their face drops to the ground as they see their own inadequacy. It's not just the glory of God. Jesus that's overwhelming to Saul, it's the realization of his own helplessness and his own sin. This means it's fair for us to ask the question, have you ever been overwhelmed by Jesus? And it's worth broadening the definition of this a little bit. For some of us, we think about the moment that we came to know firsthand the good news of this gospel, of knowing this king as our king, and it feels comparable to Saul's. There's a distinct moment of our life before and a distinct moment after, and the two feel like different people. For some of us, me included, we don't know when we became a Christian. We know that it must have happened at some point, but we don't recall a memory. We don't even really remember life before. It feels kind of like this steady flow of following Jesus without this pivotal moment, even if it was there. For some of us, we can open the Bible, and it's like the emotions just pour out as soon as we look to the words. The, the magnitude feels uh, very experiential and very emotive for us. For some of us, we open the Bible. We know it's God's Word. We know it's good. We know it shapes us. Yet maybe it feels like, I don't know, it seems like I should feel like a different person after I read it. What I want us to think about is broadening the definition of what it means for us to be overwhelmed by Jesus with less of an emphasis on a moment. These moments are not bad. They can be really good and God-glorifying things. But I want us to think about a pattern of life that is marked by being overwhelmed by Jesus. Let Let me sort of paint a picture of what I mean by this. It means all of the moments of significance in your life are significance because they are underlined by worship. 
In other words, they're not significant in and of themselves. They're significant because they are moments directing you to worship, pointing you to a God who is present in the story. About six or so months ago, um, Elizabeth and I, we have a, a 10-month-old little Wade who was here the last time we were here. And I know I am biased, but he is just awesome. He is the best. He has his third little tooth coming in, and his smiles just, man, it's the best. So about six months ago, um, I was getting ready for story time. Story time is important in our house. Stories are important. We want Wade to know from an early age the beauty of stories, especially the grand story that shapes all other stories. So we read to him a story before he goes to sleep. And now this night was the first night that it was just me and Wade. Um, Elizabeth was, I think, out maybe at a small group or something. I don't even remember. But it was just me and Wade, and I had been saving the first time it was just me and him for story time. I'd been saving my favorite book. Not even just my favorite kids, but my favorite book, The Giving Tree. I love The Giving Tree. I remember my mom reading The Giving Tree to me when I was a kid. And if you're not familiar with it, it is about as simple as a story can be. It's about a child and a tree. And it's about sacrifice. And it's about love. And it's about growing old. And I sit down with Wade, and he's in my lap with his attentive little listening hands like this that he does. And I begin to read this story, and I'm not kidding y'all, I can hardly even get a third of the way through. I mean, just waves of emotion. He probably thinks there's something tragically wrong with me. And I'm trying to get through this beautiful story, and I will never forget this moment. And it's not just because this story of love and sacrifice is beautiful, but it is beautiful. It's not just because I love my son. Of course I love my son. But it's because in this moment, the themes present in the story and the goodness of sharing a story like this with my son was pointing me, was pointing us to a God who tells an even greater story to his people of an even greater love and an even greater sacrifice, who delights even more when his children come to him and rejoice in his presence. It was a moment of significance that was good, but it was good because it was pointing to worship of the God who orchestrated the story in our lives. To be overwhelmed by Jesus is to live a life that is patterned by all of the things that take place, moving towards worship and seeing him as the end goal. That's what it means to be overwhelmed by Jesus. So the question, have we ever been overwhelmed by Jesus? An encounter with him is overwhelming. So the second thing an encounter with Jesus is, is it's transformational. We hear stories all the time of wake-up moments. You know what these are. Maybe you yourself have even experienced one where life is moving in a certain trajectory down a seemingly certain path, and all of a sudden there is a moment that shifts everything in an instant and from that moment forward, nothing else will ever be the same. Let me tell you a sentence that nobody has ever said after a transformational occurrence. They have never said. You know, I was going about my life. I had this wake-up call moment, and I knew from then on out my life was going to look a lot like it did before. Nobody has ever said this because that is not a wake-up call moment. That is not true transformation. When you are transformed... It is almost as if you could not even live like you did before if you wanted to. 
Not just because you've started doing different things, but because your fundamental allegiance has changed. The way that you even think about what you do is different and could never turn back. This takes a lot, by the way. You might already know this. How often do people change their political affiliations? Almost never. So we sort of pull the scope out and we think about the big questions in our life. It takes a lot for our commitments to change. Yet clearly that has just taken place in the life of Saul. So how on earth does this happen? What would facilitate such a change? To really grasp this, you've got to understand a little bit about who Saul was. He was born into the type of family that you would have wanted to have been born into during this time. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and a member of this group called the Pharisees, who were among the religious elites. And the Pharisees had a lot of religious power. They were admired. They were looked up to. They had control. What that also meant is he had opportunities to learn under the best teachers. He was educated. And if you were educated, that meant that you had a shot at wealth and influence And all of these were markers of Saul's life. Yet he was also born in this town called Tarsus, which was a Roman city. Remember, all of this was under the rule of the Roman Empire. He was born in this city to parents who they themselves were Roman citizens, which meant that Paul had all of the rights of Roman citizenship and didn't have to live in the same type of fear that a lot of his Jewish brothers and sisters did. And he also had some degree of political sway. He had religious authority and political power. And in order to continue a life of these things, at this time, you had to be opposed to Jesus. Because Jesus was seen as a religious threat He was going to tear apart the very fiber of religious life during this day. And he was seen as a political revolutionary who was out to undercut the Roman Empire and take over he and his followers for himself. You had to be opposed to Jesus. And Saul absolutely was. The previous chapter from what we just read ends with and picks up from the the one before it of Saul overseeing the execution of a Christian. And the text we read, why is he going to Damascus? He's going to capture Christians so he can kill them. This is Saul's life is trying to stamp out followers of Jesus because of who he is. Yet just a few days later, we find it's like those around him were just as confused as we would have been. They look around and it's like, isn't this the guy who was trying to kill Christians? And now he's preaching the same gospel that he was just putting people to death for a few days ago? It's not just that Saul is doing different things. His fundamental life commitment has changed instantly. How? How does this happen? We go back to the scene. Saul encounters Jesus with this blinding light, and he falls to the ground, and he's overwhelmed. Let's pretend for a minute that we didn't read the rest of the narrative, and we're going to write the rest of what we think would happen in this moment. What would Jesus do? I mean, think about it. He's just been raised from the dead in this glorified body, and now here's one of the guys who is putting people to death, others who are recognizing the, the truth of who Jesus is. 
He's clearly wrong. Saul's not disputing. He knows he's wrong. You realize Jesus would have been as loving and just and as good as he is if, if he had put Saul to death in that moment. Jesus would not have been wrong to do that. He would have still been just and righteous. What does he do, though? He says, Saul, rise. It's not vengeance. It's mercy. He tells him to get up. And Saul comes to the only conclusion that somebody could reasonably have in that moment. That if this is the king who I have been persecuting his followers, and he is showing me this kind of radical mercy, how could I even consider doing anything other than following him? Of my life being transformed by him. If my sin sent him to the cross and his going to the cross was the thing that actually took care of my sin of even taking him there, how could my life not be transformed by coming face to face and encountering this king? Look, if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure what you think about Christianity, maybe you're wrestling with doubts and questions, the first thing I want to say is we're so glad that you're here, that you're doing the, the courageous thing of actually investigating those doubts. And there are a host of really good questions that you can ask of Christianity. But what if you also, along with those questions, just started here? And said, even among the good questions I could ask, what if my orienting presupposition is that this is the posture that Jesus takes towards people who approach him? One of mercy and love and compassion. Because that's exactly what we see. An encounter with Jesus is transformational, which means we ask the same question of our own lives. Do our lives bear marks of people who have been transformed? We work so hard in our Reformed and Presbyterian circles to make sure that all of us absolutely know that the only way to salvation, the only way to have this gospel of good news is by grace alone through faith alone, as we should 100%. Please do not hear me say otherwise. I think often we miss that the Bible describes what a life that has been transformed by grace through faith looks like. And we live in a very peculiar time that we're coming to the end of where it's actually possible to reap a weird version of a social benefit by living as a Christian in the culturally Christian South. And those days are coming to an end if they are not already over. What this means is that our lives, by definition, have to look different in some regards than people around us who do not profess the same faith. It's exactly what the epistle James means when he says that faith without works is dead, that we're justified by works of the law. He's not saying you are saved when you do good things. He is saying it is an evidencing justification. In other words, this shows that you have been saved. So do our lives bear these marks? It means we, we have to look different in some regards. I think it means the way that we disagree with people looks different. Hopefully you are just as, as tired as I am of seeing 
not just people that disagree, but the way disagreement transpires. As Christians, we are called to even disagree differently. It means that we have to recognize the humanity of the person in front of us. It means the way that we spend our time and our money is going to look differently. Our lives aren't marked by a sacrifice of community and family for the pursuit of money and career. Not that money and career are bad things, but it means we have to live counterculturally. That we don't worship at the altar of climbing the corporate ladder. Again, not that it's bad, but it's not our orienting commitments. That we might be willing to give up some things that are good, because what it's calling us to give up in return is actually better. It means that maybe even our weekends look different. That the orienting feature of our weekend isn't Saturday night, but Sunday morning. And look, let me give a big disclaimer here. I'm not saying that enjoying Saturday night is wrong. I am convinced that weekends are one of God's great gifts to us. But what if we shape the events of the weekend not just around the fun things Saturday night and we can still do them, but what if the orienting feature of our weekend is Sunday worship, the day that God has set aside to actually, of all of the seven days, Form us most into the people that he made us to be by worshiping and resting together. That is countercultural, isn't it? For a day of worship, not just to become an expendable day of taking care of whatever felt needs I have, but actually of being shaped by the God who made me. Our lives, as people who have been transformed, bear witness to the fact that we have been transformed. Not so that we would encounter Jesus, but because we have already encountered him. So third and finally, an encounter with Jesus is loving. We can talk about realizations you have when you see this king. We can talk about life changes, but at the core of all of it, what we've got to see is to encounter this Jesus at its very root as an encounter of love. And to really get this in the text, you have to extend the narrative past what happened just in Acts chapter 9. You've got to see what Paul's life ends up becoming. I say Paul because you probably know at this point he goes by two names. Kind of as an aside, a lot of scholars believe that it wasn't a name change at this point, but a name he went by, Paul, in non-Jewish territories. That's just kind of extra credit. Saul's life, Paul's life, never looked the same from here. And it's because he traded in everything that he had, his wealth, his status, probably his family, everything that he had for a life of being in and out of house arrest, in and out of prison, in and out of the possibility of death. It's the same Paul who goes on to, to write 13 letters that become part of our canon of Scripture, who plants at least a dozen, if not more, churches and disciples, followers who will go on to plant dozens more churches. When Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, his credentials become nothing. And he gives it all up for a life of suffering. Yet while this is going on, he writes a letter to a church in this place called Philippi. And this is what he says in this letter. While, by the way, he's in house arrest, he's in prison, he can't leave. He says, whatever gain I had, and it was a lot, by the way, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. That's the posture that Paul has on his life now. 
because he has seen who Jesus is. Sometimes you have uh, an occurrence in your life that you know you will never forget. It's a memory that is solidified and you know exactly why that's the case. Sometimes you have a memory that gets solidified and it takes you 15 years to figure out why that moment was important. It was 15 years ago and I was in my white Chevy Tahoe on the way to Birmingham, Alabama. I was driving, my dad was in the passenger seat and we were going to a concert of a band that we both enjoyed. My dad made it a point to enjoy music with both of his sons, me and my brother. Music was a huge part of my family's life. It was important to us, it was important to him, and it was something we shared in together. And he prioritized being able to go to concerts with us, which is exactly what we were doing going to Birmingham. So we took a day trip, we enjoyed the city, we ate good food, we went to music stores, we explored downtown Birmingham, we went to this concert, and just had a fun time. We still talk about that concert. I still have the ticket stubs framed in my house. All of those things were so much fun, but that is actually not, none of those is my most distinct memory from this trip. My most distinct memory is the drive over. Now, unbeknownst to me while all of this was going on, at least unbeknownst in its magnitude, was really the state of my dad's job at this time. Maybe what we can just say is it had become a really stressful job and a lot of challenges. And for him to give up a Saturday to go to Birmingham to watch a concert certainly cost him other things that he could have been doing. The memory that I recall most vividly is me sitting in the driver's seat with my learner's permit, driving for the first time on an interstate, and him sitting patiently in the passenger seat. And that's, I mean, that's the end of the memory. Nothing else happened. It was just this moment of being with my dad and him delighting in the joy that I was experiencing with him on the way to do a fun thing. And it cost him something, but he was glad to do it. Not because he was hoping to hold it over my head for collateral weeks on the road, but simply because he loved his son. Paul looks at his life and the things that he's lost And those are nothing to him because he has the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, a joy that cannot be removed, a love that cannot be extinguished, and a sacrifice for him that cannot be undone. Jesus is not the king that we expect, not at least in our worldly view. He doesn't use his glory to domineer. He uses his glory to serve. He doesn't use his power for vengeance, but he uses it for mercy. He doesn't use his rule for pragmatic fixes, but for sacrificial love. We've got to see the real king for who he is. As this week progresses, what we long for is the certainty that our sins have been dealt with and a redemption hope, a resurrection hope that is the first fruits of our resurrections. A kingdom where every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. But we don't get the kingdom without the king. And if we miss the king, then we're just like those who walk away when Jesus is not the king they hope for. 
An encounter with Jesus shapes us because we see who Jesus is. We're overwhelmed by his holiness and goodness. We're transformed because of the great mercy that he has offered to us. And we see a loving God who gives himself for his people. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise this morning because... You are a gracious God who offers to your people a king that we do not deserve. We're content to settle for far less because we think we know what's best for our lives. We think we know the terms upon which we ought to operate. But your mercy extends so much farther beyond what we could even comprehend. A mercy that you are more willing to give to us than we are even to receive it. So as we recognize the resurrection hope before us in the coming week and every coming Sunday following. Would you implant in our hearts deeply this hope, the spirit that is sent by this king, that we would know and encounter firsthand your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.